from the nation's leading supply chain university program, we welcome you to the Penn State Supply Chain Podcast, brought to you by the Center for Supply Chain Research. Here are your hosts, Steve Tracy and Irv Grossman. With the United States potentially facing an economic downturn, a recession is a looming topic surfacing in many offices, boardrooms, and hallway conversations. Economic uncertainty directly affects the supply chain, how strategic leaders prepare for a recession that may or may not come will be a key factor in their organization's success. Joining us today is Dr. Charles Whiteman. He is the John and Karen Arnold Dean for the Smeal College of Business. Chuck oversees all aspects at Smeal, including over 6,000 students at all levels, research activities of faculty and leading research centers in business, such as the Center for Supply Chain Research, as well as over 100,000 proud SMEAL graduates from around the world. It's an honor to have you join us today, Chuck. Thank you for your time. Well, thank you for having me. Appreciate it very much. So I'm gonna start with a TF question. What, in your point of view, has changed in academia since the beginning of the pandemic? Well, I'd say the, the chief thing that's changed is the acceleration of the move to the flipped classroom. I think progress on, on flipping the classroom, that is where content is delivered over the internet at the student's convenience for the most part, and uh, class time is used to work problems. So the reason we call it a flipped classroom is instead of going to class to hear a lecture, you hear the lecture at home, maybe in your pajamas over the internet, and then when you go to class, you do your homework. Well, uh, during uh, COVID, uh, a lot of people who had not made the effort to flip their classrooms kind of had them flipped off <laughs> by external forces. And a lot of people got a lot more accustomed to content delivery happening in another way, and then class time being devoted to something else. And uh, I think that's actually a very good thing uh, because I think that the learning environment is best when it's active and the flipped classroom certainly encourages that. Uh, when I flipped my classroom is a long time ago, I noticed almost immediately that student performance went way up. And it was because the class was being, class time was being used to put the material to work. It wasn't being used to deliver the material to the students. And I've been saying for many years now that the days that when we can expect young people in their late teens and early 20s to physically go places to listen to sages on the stage, those days are behind us. And the pandemic certainly accelerated that. Well, Chuck, I'm going to be a little informal today since we've known each other for almost a decade now. Uh, let's talk a little bit about, I'm going to ask you to put your economist hat on and, uh, and talk a little bit about, number one is, so you're a Bayesian economist. People might be curious about what that actually means. Uh, but second, <laughs> as we talk about the concept of a recession, right, and how it might affect supply chain or business, after you tell us what a Bayesian economist is or does, how do you view, you know, what is a recession and what does it really mean to a business leader if there's a recession? And I'm sure there's different variations on that. Uh, sure. Let me start with my background. I have a PhD in economics from the University of Minnesota. And while I was there, I worked with uh, two economists who ultimately went on to win the Nobel Prize in economic science. My advisor was Tom Sargent. And another member of my committee was Chris Sims. And I get the beginnings of Bayesian it's really Bayesian econometrician from uh, Chris Sims. We didn't know it at the time, but uh, he was a closeted Bayesian. And we learned a lot of things that were kind of 
standard econometrics and statistics, but later turned out to be very useful in Bayesian thinking. So what's that? Very briefly, I, I don't want to get too far into the weeds here, but there are two prominent methods of statistical inference. The standard one that probably everybody learned uh, the first time they learned anything about mathematical statistics is called frequentist statistics. Uh, and in contrast, stemming from the, the legacy of Reverend Thomas Bayes over 200 years ago is the Bayesian approach. And the, the key ideas here are a frequentist looks at a data set with a particular uh, idea called a hypothesis in mind. And uh, then the, so what you do is you take the hypothesis as given and then use statistical procedures to try to determine whether the data that you have would look unusual if the hypothesis were correct. All right, so I'm going to put this in the vernacular. So you take as given something you don't know, and you treat something that you do know, the data, as random. Now, Bayesian turns this on his head and says, we ought to take as given what we know, the data, and then ask, what did the data tell us about what might be true? Anyway, in my uh, academic career, I worked on uh, various problems and issues in interpreting uh, economic data from the Bayesian standpoint. And for many years, prior to coming to Penn State, when I was at the University of Iowa, I did economic forecasting for the state, really from about 1990, off and on up until I left Iowa in 2012. And throughout that period, I used uh, Bayesian procedures to generate economic forecasts, which carried with them measures of intrinsic uncertainty about the forecast itself. So if you read one of my forecasts, you would say, I don't see a number here. I see a bell-shaped curve, and then a lot of characteristics of that bell-shaped curve. And uh, the Bayesian procedures made it relatively straightforward to produce that kind of a forecast, which can be used to say things like, well, okay, you're, you're forecasting economic conditions. I kind of want to know what's the most likely thing or what's the average thing that's going to happen. But when you're forecasting state tax revenues, maybe you want to say, if I have to make a decision about what we're going to think is going to be a, a good forecast for tax revenue growth. Maybe we want to say, you know, if we make a forecast that results in a deficit, that's a bigger problem than if we make a forecast that results in a surplus. And if you've got the bell-shaped curve representing the likely outcomes uh, for what you're predicting, then you can apply uh, different kinds of what economists and statisticians call loss functions that can incorporate ideas like a dollar of deficit is more costly than a dollar of surplus. And so I did, did quite a bit of that. So let me, let me turn to your question about uh, recession and start with the definition, which is you talk to five different economists, you'll get five different definitions. <laughs> okay, well, we're talking to one. So we're going to get one for today. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll talk about uh, how I think about it. Basically speaking, a, a recession is a downturn in economic activity, a reduction in economic activity. A rule of thumb that we've often used is if real GDP, that is the, the broadest measure of economic activity in the economy, corrected for price effects, if that goes down two quarters running, that is for over six months, uh, that's that's kind of a rule of thumb about what a recession is. But if you, you call up the National Bureau of Economic Research and say, what's a recession? They'll tell you, wait a minute, let me go ask the, uh, the dating committee. 
So there's a, a group of economists, a handful or so, prominent uh, academic economists who meet periodically to go over the broadest imaginable set of measures of economic conditions and make a pronouncement about whether or not there has been a recession or we're in one. And it's kind of kind of fun to watch it work, actually. I've seen this on many occasions, mostly at nice restaurants in Cambridge, Massachusetts, uh, in association with uh, conferences at the NBER. And so there's a, one table of these uh, NBER dating committee economists, and they sit around and they've got uh, computer stuff and you know printouts and data and all kinds of stuff. And they're arguing about whether or not this is really a downturn in economic activity. And uh, they're not limited by, it's got to be two consecutive quarters of reduction in real GDP. In fact, the most recent recession that we had, <laughs> far shorter than two quarters, it was the COVID recession, uh, which I think is the shortest recession on record, which I, I think in, at the end of the day was even less than three months. So that's that's what it is. Why do you worry about it? Well, I would say whenever there's a slowdown in growth, business leaders should be concerned. It means very probably that demand for what they do is going to uh, be reduced. Maybe other things will, will slow down. Availability of raw materials or intermediate goods uh, might be reduced, that sort of thing. But is there, there, is there something magic about the difference between a half a percent growth that's positive and a half a percent growth that's negative? And the answer is no, that difference is 1%. <laughs> uh, and the fact that one is positive and one is negative is not that big a deal. So what we would like to see is real growth in the 2 to 3% range. Uh, we had that during the, the recovery from the COVID situation. But now we're in a situation where we've had some, some disruptions that are, and, and some other things that have occurred that have resulted in uh, inflation. Everybody sees it. And currently the Fed is undertaking some activities to try to bring inflation under control. Now you might say, okay, what does that have to do with recessions? Many, not all, but many of the recessions that we've had in the past have been the result of the Fed trying to control inflation and overshooting. And basically shutting the economy down maybe too rapidly or too far, that sort of thing. Now, when you think about what the Fed is currently doing, it's important, I think, to recognize that in this inflationary environment, there are a lot of contributing factors here. It's not, not a simple matter like in the late 1970s, we had the foot on the monetary gas pretty hard. And that was the reason inflation started. And to get it stopped, once it got entrenched, required Paul Volcker and the Fed to engineer a recession, which they did. I think that the current inflationary environment, as I said, has resulted from a combination of factors. First, we had supply disruptions uh, having to do with COVID. Uh, maybe not first, because we uh, had pretty easy money even prior to that. And then when the COVID crisis hit, we really stepped on the fiscal gas. So lots of fiscal stimulus. You know, when I was actively teaching executive MBAs and I would give them a what if homework problem that said, you know, suppose that the treasury increases spending by a trillion dollars and the students would all laugh at me. And then of course, during COVID, we did it. <laughs> so we got fiscal stimulus, we had monetary stimulus, we had supply disruptions. We're concerned, although 
maybe we shouldn't be too concerned about uh, expectation effects, uh, which can also themselves lead to inflationary environments. And I should say there's an important distinction to be made here between price increases and inflation. This is easy to, this distinction is easy to make in the classroom, but when you're in the real world, it's a little tough to tell. Are you facing something that is a one-time price increase? That is, you know, the price of gas goes from $2 a gallon to $3 a gallon and then stays there, mm-hmm. or that's stretched out over a period of time, or is it that the price of gasoline is rising 5% a year and it's that's going to keep happening? And as I said, when you're in the middle of it, you can't really tell. And so that's why you get different opinions uh, from different economists about what kind of inflationary environment or what kind of price increase environment we are facing. A year ago at this time, if we'd been talking about this, many economists were still saying that this price increase that we're seeing, this is transitory, meaning what we think is that the COVID situation caused a jump in the general price level. And then things are going to be calm after that. And there are various versions of this that say, well, okay, stuff can't happen instantaneously. So it takes a little bit of time for this to happen. And as a little bit of time got a little bit more time and then a little bit more than that, people started saying, well, maybe this is not just transitory. Maybe it's something else. But that was the prevailing wisdom over a year ago, right? I would say that a majority of economists felt that way, and I was one of them. But, you know, there are a lot of confounding things happening at the same time with, you know, what the Fed was doing, you know, a year ago at this time, Fed hadn't started tightening yet. And a lot of economists thought that it needed to do it. And maybe it was overdue in doing it. We had this gigantic amount of fiscal stimulus, and we were worried about people's inflationary expectations adjusting in such a way to encourage the inflation itself, which can happen. So I think now people are are more in tune with the notion that, yeah, the supply disruptions probably had a price level jump kind of aspect to them, but it wasn't just that. It was it was ongoing. There, you know, it could have been that the the supply bottlenecks and supply chain issues were rippling throughout various sectors in the economy. You know, there was a time when renting a container to ship something from London to uh, the middle of the United States cost $4,000, and then it somehow got to $18,000 kind of overnight, right? I, I think it's it's worth emphasizing that when you're in the middle of this trying to figure it out, it's it's not necessarily so clear. And so that's why economists are always saying on the one hand, on the other hand, uh, I think it was Lyndon Johnson who said, bring me a one-armed economist. So let's ask you the, I guess, the trillion-dollar question. When will we, know, it's already 2023, right? We've been talking about this now for months. When will we know if we're in a recession or if we had a recession? <laughs> okay, well, let me let me start with an anecdote. I'm going to go back to 1990. A few months earlier, become director of the Institute for Economic Research at the University of Iowa. And I was heading into my first advisory role advising the body of government in Iowa called the Revenue Estimating Conference. Their job was to uh, come up with a number that represented their best prediction of state tax revenue growth in the coming year and the following year. And this, this estimate had real bite to it because it would bind the governor as to what he could propose in the January State of the State speech. And then it would bind the the legislature 
uh, throughout the course of the following four months or so in what they could spend. So this is a big deal. All right, now to set the stage in, I think it was August, Saddam Hussein had invaded Kuwait. All right, so we got a lot of uncertainty about that. And throughout the course of the fall, there was a lot of discussion uh, in the economic press about whether we were in a recession, about to enter a recession, recession was over, whatever. And there was a new kind of prediction method for predicting uh, recessions based on the work of uh, colleagues in, uh, in econometrics, uh, in, in, in economics, that used basically long and short-term interest rates to predict recessions. And they were predicting a recession. And so I'm now headed into this meeting where I'm going to advise this uh, body that's going to make this choice. And December 14th was the night before uh, this meeting. And the chair of the economic advisors or the president of the United States said that evening on the national news, we are not in a recession. On Christmas Eve, the same chair of the Council of Economic Advisors said the recession's over. Really? Okay. You've asked me a very tough question here. Uh, I would say for this kind of an event, it's going to be months after uh, its conclusion that we'll actually know. You know, some of the, the recent episodic layoff notices that have occurred are concerning about whether we're going into one or we are in one. Mm -hmm. uh, up until, I would say, some of the big tech industry layoffs and announcements of the past few weeks, uh, I was thinking there was a decent chance that the Fed was going to be able to engineer a soft landing. That is, a, a slowdown that would get inflation under control without making us turn down. Yeah, I'm a little less confident in that prediction now. But when? I would say maybe by late spring. Is there any difference do you see between like this this cycle versus a past cycle or past recession? Is there any is there a difference in this pattern or is it consistent to what you've seen before? Uh, I think it is a bit different. The supply chain disruptions are a pretty big deal. There were supply shocks in the 1970s that pushed us into recession, but they were a different kind of supply shock. One prominent one was the failure of the Soviet wheat harvest. Another one, you don't know it by this name, but at the time, lots of people were really concerned that anchovies disappeared off the coast of Peru. Really? Why? Well, they're used in cattle feed and fertilizer. It's a pretty big industry. And we now know why the anchovies disappeared. It was one of the first instances of El Nino, which is a, that's a weather-related supply shock. But that's a, a different kind of thing than everybody went home and closed their doors and didn't do anything for five months. That's a different kind of supply shock. And you know, anchovies dying and the wheat harvest failing didn't get containers and equipment and ships in the wrong places. This one did. And so I think that's, that's a different aspect to it. The other one is immediately upon the, uh, the onset of COVID, even prior to that, we were engaging in quite a bit of fiscal stimulus. And so we're, we're trying to undo that, the effects of that at the same time that we're trying to undo the effects of uh, relatively loose monetary policy. So I, I do think that the flavor of this one is different. I guess one of the fun parts about being an economist is the landscape is ever changing, right? And so even though, you know, and and I love your your colloquial description of a Bayesian where he's like, well, we've got all this data, but we don't know what it tells us, right? So 
Um, I, I want to interject, for, Steve. It's the yeah. same kind of thing where supply chain practitioners, right? There's never a dull moment, right? There's never a dull moment. <laughs> right. And the other thing is that not only are things always changing, but it makes it essentially impossible to control for all of the things that might be causing what you're seeing, right? So as an economist, we spend a lot of time working with models that enable us to tell with precision the effect of some kind of external event in isolation. What is the world with like that external event? And what is the world like without that external event? Whereas in the real world, all you can tell is stuff sort of related to before and after. After did not get caused by before. So Chuck, our audience is primarily, not exclusively, but primarily made up of supply chain leaders. And they've got a variety of interests. Of course, prices is one. Supply is another one. Uh, customer demand is another one. And then a fourth one is, is talent, right? And our, our audience has been suffering with a dearth of talent now for a while in the supply chain. And every, for everywhere from blue collar jobs to white collar jobs and across the spectrum, leadership jobs. So if you were advising a group of supply chain leaders, what strategic approaches would you talk to them about in thinking about those sort of four quadrants of the way a supply chain leader thinks? Like what, what would you suggest that they be paying attention to, thinking about, preparing for, trying to avoid? What are the kinds of things you might tell them? Well, let me, let me start with talent. As we slow down, a red hot economy uh, is one in which talent is really hard to find. And if we manage to, to slow down in such a way that we, we do make some headway on, on inflation, I think talent's going to be easier to find. So that, that maybe is an upside to an economic slowdown. Most economists, I think, will not talk about a shortage of talent or material, uh, material maybe, but certainly of talent as, as a primary problem. The primary problem is you perceive a shortage of talent when you're not paying what it's worth. And so, you know, there are, I think, upsides to ensuring that you have talent uh, that will stick around. And so one of the things that I advise people think about, uh, particularly as it pertains to talent acquisition, is pay people a decent salary. And maybe that's more than you have thought about paying in the past. Because if you get people and you can keep them, you avoid a pretty serious cost, talent turnover. And you just think about how long it takes to get a new employee accustomed to how you do business, uh, what the problems are, where the issues are, that sort of thing. A few years ago, the Associate Dean for Professional Graduate Education and I had the opportunity to speak to the advisory board for the College of Science here at Penn State. And the reason we were talking to that board is that we were about to launch a program to help train students up in management principles uh, for an audience based in the STEM fields, science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. And uh, so we described this program, which was basically the first year of our resident two-year MBA program. And uh, the first thing they said was, where were you when I was in school? And the second thing was they were doing backflips because they were saying, wait a minute, you mean we could send our new employees to your program, pay their tuition. It'd be a lot less expensive than employing them for a year, get them trained up. And by the time they come to us, they won't annoy the, the, science, the business people. <laughs> and I think that's actually really quite a valuable thing to think about, that 
that uh, you know, good talent is hard to get. People are always thinking about uh, ways to innovatively find it and keep it. So I, th- I, I think maybe that's probably the big one when it comes to talent acquisition. When it comes to uh, more general issues about what to think about, you and I have talked about this, Steve. I think it's it's becoming cliche by now to say, you know, su- supply chains five years ago, the primary thinking was just in time. And supply chains, when we, we hit COVID, were, oh my goodness, that doesn't work. So thinking about resilience of supply chains uh, in all its possible ways, backup plans. I mean, we've just seen for instance, with the Southwest Airlines debacle, that one way of configuring uh, your production process uh, <laughs> might be really problematic if certain kinds of shocks occurred to the system. Whereas another kind of organizational principle for your production process uh, is resilient in the face of that same crisis. So, uh, you know, I certainly can't anticipate all of the things that are like that, but yeah. What we do in uh, academic economics is we try to help students understand how to answer their own what-if questions. Uh, And I think what supply chain leaders and, frankly, business leaders of all types should be thinking is, what what if questions should I be asking myself? And probably getting as many people in as diverse an input group in the room to be thinking about what things we ought to be worried about that might happen to us in the future would be a pretty good idea. Well, Chuck, on behalf of the Center for Supply Chain Research, I will say this Mill College of Business, because but we're part of the same organization and Penn State University. We thank you for and proud alums. And what's well, and, and fellow and proud alums. Thank you for uh thank you for joining us today for the uh, Penn State Supply Chain podcast. Irv, you want to close it out with uh, some final thoughts and uh, no, it's been a fascinating conversation. There's a lot, I mean. Like we talk about, I mean, there's what what you're talking about, Chuck, or things that we as supply chain practitioners have to think through on a daily basis. And uh, like I said earlier, there's never a dull moment. So we really appreciate your putting in, an insight today on the on the podcast. Thank you. Well, thanks. Thanks a lot. I hope your listeners found it useful. And we'll have to, uh, Irv, we'll have to pop a note out in the late spring, early summer and say, we had a recession. We didn't have a recession. <laughs> Who knows? Because you <laughs> What know, was the answer? That's the question. Give me the answer. Key. I need to know the answer. <laughs> yeah. I hope this was fun for you, Chuck. Thanks for joining us. Absolutely. It was a great, uh, great pleasure. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the Penn State Supply Chain Podcast, brought to you by the Center for Supply Chain Research at Penn State. For information about our sponsorship opportunities, research needs, and professional development offerings, please visit smeal.psu.edu forward slash CSCR.